Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 97. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are delving back into the MCU this week with a review and discussion of 2015's Ant-Man. It's been a while since we jumped into the MCU. We did Black Panther a couple of months ago, landed on that as a part of a Monorail Radio roulette. But we had a big build-up to Endgame, so I think we took a little bit of a step back from the MCU after that, so I'm interested and excited in dipping our toes back into the water for the next couple of weeks here. Well, it is the fifth anniversary. That's why we chose to do it. I mean, I also can't believe it's been five years. This movie does not feel five years old. No, it definitely doesn't. I don't know. Sometimes it feels more recent than that, and then other times when I think about Endgame, I'm like, wow, Ant-Man was only five years ago? Because... I feel like his story sort of gets buried until Endgame. So it feels like it was, you know, from much earlier. Yeah, well, I think because the MCU took so much time in building up what eventually led to Endgame, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that the, you know, the first movie for any franchise seems like it's so long ago because there's now been well over 20 movies in the MCU. So many of them have been sequels that it's easy to think that this is in the same Thor, Captain America, Iron Man. But at the same time, I just could not believe that this movie's already five years old. And it could be that they spit out Ant-Man and the Wasp fairly recently. And sometimes you can kind of get those two movies confused. But it still surprised me to learn that we're on the five-year anniversary. That's actually kind of how I feel about it. Ant-Man, to me, feels like a one-off, almost like Mm -hmm. a Doctor Strange. Right, but even Doctor Strange is getting a sequel, like the Hulk. The Hulk is a one-off, and because Universal still owns the film rights to that franchise somehow, someway, it's almost impossible for Disney to make a sequel to the Hulk. I'm talking about in terms of before Infinity War and Endgame. Because even at that point, Black Panther, I mean, we knew they were going to do a trilogy, but at that point, it was a one-off going into the Endgame. Right. And this was also a movie that they had been talking about making for so long. Um, We're going to get into the production in a minute here because I do want to launch right into the plot here. We start in 1989, Hank Pym decides that he's going to leave S.H.I.E.L.D. after learning that they planned to use his Ant-Man technology and he did not want them to have it. Fast forward to present day, Pym's former protege, Darren Cross, is at the brink of replicating the tech to sell to the military under the new name Yellow Jacket, much to the dismay of Pym. We also meet his estranged daughter, Hope, who helped get her father thrown out of his own company, basically, and she has continued to work with Cross all of this time. We then meet Scott Lang, who has been released from prison and is attempting to return to civilian life so he can be a dedicated father to his daughter, Cassie. His ex-wife, Maggie, and her fiancé, 
Paxton, who's also a detective, don't want him present until he can hold a job and pay child support. Unable to find work, he decides to take his friend and former cellmate, Luis, up on an offer to partake in one more heist for a huge score. He's told that there's this old man, he's going to be out of town for a week, and he's got this safe, and we don't know what's in it, but it's very valuable. So Scott breaks into that home, cracks its safe, and finds the Ant-Man suit, thinking it's an old motorcycle suit, but he takes it with him anyway. All the while, Hank Pym watches from a camera he has mounted to an ant. The next day, Scott tries the suit on and shrinks to the size of an insect and finds himself avoiding obstacles to stay alive, all while Hank gives him uh, gives him instructions through his helmet. Excuse me. Horrified by the suit and the technology that it has, Scott returns it but is arrested because they think that he is breaking into the home to steal. And of course he says, as only Paul Rudd can say, no, 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 I'm, I'm just returning something I already stole. So Pym arrives at the jail pretending to be Scott's lawyer and breaks him out using the Ant-Man suit. We also learn that he manipulated Scott into stealing the suit by preying on an unaware Luis in order to help him steal the yellow jacket from Cross. This was basically a whole big setup to get to Scott so that they can get the yellow jacket. We also learn that Hope approached Hank when she saw how closely Cross had come to replicating Hank's technology. We then learn that Hope's mother Janet has been lost in the quantum realm after disabling a Soviet missile that had been fired at the United States, and this is why Hank warns Scott never to override the suit's regulator. They later send Scott to the Avengers headquarters to steal a device that they need for their mission against Cross, and Scott finds himself battling the Falcon to fight his way out. After Cross perfects his technology, he holds a gala event. Hank, Hope, and Scott plan on destroying Cross's security servers and using Scott as the Ant-Man to steal the Yellow Jacket, but are eventually caught by Cross and agents of Hydra, whom Cross was set on selling the suit to. During a skirmish, Hank is shot, but everyone manages to escape the building. Scott pursues Cross, and the explosives that he planted in the servers explode, causing Cross's headquarters to implode. After battling Cross, who is now in the yellow jacket suit, Scott is arrested by Paxton, who refuses to believe Scott's stories. It turns out that the yellow jacket has gone to Maggie and Paxton's house and has taken Cassie hostage as a way of luring Scott back in. So Scott does show up at the house, and in an attempt to save Cassie's life, he overrides his regulator to shrink to subatomic size to destroy the yellow jacket suit, but he then disappears into the quantum realm. He then uses a disc that Pym gave him. Now, this disc was meant to use as a weapon. He had a shrinking disc, and he had an expanding disc. He takes the expanding disc to override the regulator and escape the quantum realm and is reunited with Cassie. He shrinks back down to the Ant-Man size, and with the help of Paxton, is kept out of prison, and his story is basically covered up. Later, Luis reveals to Scott that the Avengers are now looking for Scott as they need his help. So that's a very shortened uh, plot here of this movie because the movie 
they get very deep into subatomic particles, the Pym particles, the cross particles, the quantum realm. So it can get very convoluted very quickly. Which is interesting, though, because I want to point out that this is the first Marvel review that we're doing in our normal format. Every other Marvel movie, we've had to do linear because the plots get so convoluted. This sounds convoluted because of all the science and tech involved with it, but the plot is fairly simple. It's a heist movie. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really just a heist movie. And it had been in development for so long. I mean, going back to the 1980s, they had talked about making an Ant-Man film. And the reason why they never went forward with it was because while they were trying to get Ant-Man made, they found out Disney was making a movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And so they never moved forward in the 80s with making the Ant-Man movie. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. And even more interesting, in 2000, there was a there was a financial backer that tried to get the rights to the Ant-Man movie because he wanted it made. And it could have not been from a more unlikely source. As Howard Stern tried to... What? He tried to get the rights to the Ant-Man movie. That's very interesting. And okay. there was a time where they had said Ant-Man... It, it may have been a spoof film because originally they had talked about doing a Green Lantern movie with Jack Black and doing it as a comedy before they landed on the Ryan Reynolds film. Again, what? So there was rumor that Ant-Man was sort of headed in the same direction. But once Marvel started building the MCU and Paul Feig got involved, they kind of pulled away from that. And that's how we landed on the movie that we have today. Well, I think it did come along at the right time because obviously you needed this character and you needed the Pym Particles to pull off Avengers Endgame. Right. Obviously, we know that now. Um, But I think it was also smart where they put it in the timeline and that we're still going to get more Ant-Man even after Endgame because this does feel like it stands... On its own. And I I think, you know, I think that's done intentionally. I think as far as Iron Man, the Cap, Thor, the ones that got their trilogies going into Infinity War and Endgame, I mean, we were supposed to feel a certain way about them. That's why they made the two Avengers movies and then everybody else got the one-offs, as we were calling them, before Infinity War and Endgame. Because Black Panther, Doctor Strange, and this... And even Spider-Man all have completely different feels to them. And I think that's done intentionally because they were introduced in Civil War as like secondary characters. Right. And I think other than Black Panther and Spider-Man, very much Doctor Strange and Ant-Man are those secondary characters that I feel like a lot of the casual moviegoers, the casual comic book fans don't really know a lot about them. Right. And I think that's where this movie is so unique. I mean, the story itself, like like we said, at the at the end of this, it's really just a heist movie. But there's a lot of science involved, and it just doesn't ever get as confusing or convoluted. I 
for some reason, seem to understand the science in this movie more than I understand the science in Iron Man. And Iron Man is really just a weaponized suit. So it's it's unique how you've got... it At the end of the... It's a suit developed by a scientist. And I, there's just something about this that seems to make a little bit more sense to me. I don't know why. I think because they had to oversimplify this one. I because think Because right. when you think about it, Tony, anytime he's designing anything, he's got... Jarvis or um, what's her name? Vanessa? Uh, yes, I think Veronica. So. Veronica. Veronica. Um, you know, he's got multiple computer screens. He's pointing at everything and he's very quick. This, you don't have any of the tech really. It's right. just the science. So I think they had to be very careful because otherwise it would have gotten way too wordy. And because you don't have those visual cues with the computer, then it really would have become confusing. I almost wish, though, that we didn't have that set up in the beginning where we see the flashback to uh, him in the in the eighties with Shield with Shield, yes, because um, we see Agent Carter, and as much as I enjoy seeing her aged in, you know, that would have been real time for her, um, and, and I I appreciate that they gave us some context for Pym's role and and not wanting to sell the Pym particles over to Stark and have him involved with any of this. Um, I kind of wish we met him when we learned that he's the one who set up Scott because I feel like it would have made this story a lot more interesting and it would have given it that convoluted feel that most Marvel movies have where you don't know who you can trust because here I feel like they try to do it with hope but she never does anything that's not trustworthy other than stick with with Cross. cross and be sort of condescending towards her father exactly um i i can appreciate the strange relationship especially because that parallels scott and what he's trying to repair with his daughter um and you know that also sets up how pym sort of sees himself in scott but I kind of wish we had just met the crazy guy that orchestrated all of this and we didn't really know what to make of him. I agree. Um, I think it would have you I think you're right. It would have made for a more interesting story. I think it would have made for a more dramatic story. But to piggyback off of what you said, I think so much of this movie is oversimplified. I don't know if it's that they weren't sure if the movie would get a sequel and they were just trying to flesh out everything as quickly as they could. Because this is also one of the rare Marvel movies that has a running time under two hours. So I wonder as well if they did not know how people would take to Ant-Man. And and the movie was a box office success. It made over a half a billion dollars at the box office. But I wonder how much of that had to do with people being interested in seeing Ant-Man and being interested in seeing Paul Rudd, and how much of that was, well, we have to see this before we see the next Avengers movie. And I feel like that was the trap that was set for a lot of people. And I think that that's why people were happy to let Marvel take a break for a while after we got through Endgame. Because you were in a position where you you had to see every single movie 
if you were in t- if your intention was seeing Endgame. And I feel like I know at times I felt like did I need to get an Ant-Man movie? As it turns out the answer was yes, we did. But when the movie came out, I wondered, do we really need this? Is it necessary or is this a way of Disney getting my box office money? And I think that's why they tried to oversimplify and cram so much into a two-hour movie. Right, because even scenes like where he's breaking into the safe, like if that were Iron Man or, you know, even the cap, the cap probably just would have hit it with a shield and the door would have flung open. Or Iron Man, he would have just beamed the safe open. Here... That's like a 10-minute sequence to do the heist. And, you know, granted, we said this is a heist movie, so you are supposed to focus on those parts of it. I mean, this is not Ocean's Eleven. You know, you're not building to it. You don't need that much plot and planning as far as pulling it off. But they spent a lot of time here, and I thought it was... I like seeing Scott's ingenuity when it comes to the fingerprint, um, yeah. the fingerprint lock, and he has to, you know, get a print and and he like molds it into rubber to use it to open the door, and then there's another door behind it. But then when he gets to that second door, again, I feel like it's oversimplified because it's just older technology and he realizes that if he freezes the lock, it's just going to expand and open the safe. And to me, that's so much more simple when you've gone through this elaborate process on the fly just to get in. I don't think that that's uh, oversimplification so much as it is that you're trying to convince the moviegoer, the audience, that he's done it before, he's quick on his feet, and he's wildly intelligent. But because... They here's the thing. They focus on a lot of minutia at times, but when they decide that they're moving forward with the action and the and in the sequences that entail the action, that kind of moves really fast. So the pacing at times is a little wonky. So I can see where this is coming off as you said sort of rushing through it and flying by the seat of his pants. I don't think that's their intention. But I think because of the way the movie flows, you're kind of just predisposed to believing that in, in, in a scene where I think that they're just trying to show you he's a very smart person and a savvy thief. No, and it does also set up a huge disappointment because he thinks he's getting a good hit in the safe and all he finds is the suit, obviously not knowing what it can do. And that was effective to later learn that it was planned by Pym the whole time. Right. We start to see some of these characters, you know, the rest of them as they get fleshed out. For example, um, when we meet Luis, let's talk about in the story here. We all have that friend, right? Yeah. That, and, and I do it myself on this show regularly where I make a short story long. You do that in life a lot. I do. So every time he does it, it's gold. I love it. I know some people it drives them crazy in the storyline, but I very much appreciate what he's doing because he's giving us all the details. No, and it's hysterical the way they do it, too, because 
you know, th- this is a group of thugs, really. Yeah. They're, they're planning a robbery. So whenever he's talking about a story where he met someone, he's at a wine tasting, he's at an art exhibit, and he gives you all of these details that you don't expect him to know. It's hysterical. Yeah. And I think that it also does a good job of adding comic relief where the movie starts to get very heavy with the science. Because the movie within itself is very tongue-in-cheek. It's very funny. I think the cast lends itself to that, specifically Michael Pena and Paul Rudd. But for a other than Ragnarok and maybe the Guardians movies, this tends to lean closer to the comedy side than it does the sci-fi or action side, more so than most of the movies in the MCU. I think a lot of that comes from casting Paul Rudd, and we're going to talk more about Scott Lang and Ant-Man, you know, when we break down the characters. But, you know, he's a good-looking guy. He's on the level, I think, of Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, but he doesn't have those same leading man qualities that they do. So... He's the funny guy. He always has been. And, and he's just aged incredibly well. Yes. But he's also got his very own specific brand of comedy because nobody can pull off awkward like Paul Rudd. And if you don't believe me, go watch I Love You, Man. Yeah. I mean, he's made a career out of this. So I think putting him in this movie where it's sort of an offbeat character to begin with, I think that was probably the right idea. And you start to see this get fleshed out almost from the jump. You see him in prison. You see him getting smacked around. And even as he's getting smacked around and he says, you guys have the weirdest goodbyes that he's just getting beaten up and they release him and they let him go. So I think that it's it's an interesting take, too, because this is clearly not somebody you don't look at, at Paul Rudd anyway and say this is a hardened criminal Somebody like that that's coming. He would not have fit in the cast of Con Air, but coming out of prison, you think to yourself, okay, so he went in. I mean, he was he was a thief. I I get the feeling it was not a white collar prison, but it doesn't seem like he was he didn't live the prison lifestyle as if it was that hard for him. It seems like he had a lot of friends there. And if the worst thing they did was punch him in the eye as a, as a means of saying goodbye, and he still has this sense of humor about him, it's like, okay, I, I can sort of buy this. I, I think it's funnier when he lies and gives a fake name and gets fired from his job at Baskin Robbins. Because <laughs> Baskin Robbins always finds out. That is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's trying to sell the mango black. Just the way that he says it. Yeah. He's so committed. It's hysterical. Yeah, he's you could he's the new employee that they they he's got his talking points that he needs to hit and he's bright-eyed and he's bushy-tailed and he's got the big smile because he's trying to make himself of something and gets fired immediately. And that entire scene is basically just a throwaway scene. But I use it as an example of how this movie is so unique and so different in terms of tone from the rest of the movies in the MCU. Like obviously, that does not work for Tony Stark. Maybe it works for Peter Parker. It doesn't work for anyone else. Right. Like, you're not going to see Thor in disguise working at a convenience store. Exactly. Seeing him, 
seeing him in the in the quote unquote fat suit in Endgame. In New Asgard. In New Asgard. <laughs> New Asgard. Between that and Ragnarok's about the most funny you're going to get out of Thor. Right. So moving back to what we just talked about, right, with that heist and how he was able to pull all of this off. To me, this is where the movie really starts to take off. When you see Hank Pym sitting there in his in his little man cave with all of the monitors, and, and you could tell th- nothing has been done by accident. This is a completely calculated move. And I think this is where the movie really starts to hit its stride. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that he didn't have the man cave right in the second safe. That way when Scott breaks in like that, that also would have been a really funny move for the character too, is he locks himself in his own safe on faith that Scott is going to bust him out. But you know, say Scott breaks in and he's sitting there and he's like, hi, I've set this whole thing up. Mm. Um, I think that would have been funny. However, the fact that he was off site and later it sets up Scott getting busted does strengthen the subplot and the conflict with his ex-wife's new fiance. Right. And it also sets up that clearly Pim has been, for a lack of better term, weaponizing these ants for a long time. The fact that he was able to plant that camera on that ant, and it shows also that it starts to flesh out the obsession with the ants for Pim moving forward. I think that the scene, and this happens shortly thereafter, um, I believe it's shortly there. It's, it's around the time of the heist, where Darren goes out to dinner with Hope, and they're cheersing their success, even though he has not yet perfected his technology. This is a guy that, as we've gotten introduced to him, and you've really only gotten the one scene of him trying to sell this yellow jacket technology. First off, I love the name yellow jacket because nobody likes a yellow jacket. Nobody wants a yellow jacket in their house. And it looks menacing. So it it gives the feel of what's going to of what should be a really great villain. Is he a great villain? We'll hash that out in a little while here. But this is the first time we've really seen him without for lack of a better term, the camera's on him. Because the only other time we've seen him is when he's trying to present to prospective buyers. And now it's him with hope, and he is so smug in telling her not only what a bad mentor Hank was to him, but what a bad father he was to hope. It's a very uncomfortable scene, but I think it works in moving the story forward and developing in developing the drama that's not only going to exist between Pym and Cross, but also what's going to happen between Hank and Hope and how Scott is sort of lost in the middle of all of this. What I like, too, about the whole Cross story arc is not just that he's working with Hope, who has sort of turned her back on her father, but he was at one time his protege, so it layers the story a bit more. Yeah, I feel like another thing that sets this story apart from the rest of them is so many villains in these Marvel movies are 
fleshed out and built over their action uh, uh, over their actions and their reactions i feel like for the most part he's kind of just fleshed out in dialogue because i feel like you don't even see him that much in this movie no he doesn't have a lot of screen time you're right so it totally totally is different from basically anything else that we have seen up to this point in time what I also think feels different, too, about Ant-Man compared to the rest of the Avengers, his training sequence. Once he's, you know, on board with Pym, they get hope back on their side to help them. I kind of feel like this is the least interesting training out of all of the Avengers. Th- this isn't like your hero montage. No. I think the only the only good thing that came out of this scene was how they sort of planted the quantum realm. In fact, I love how they planted the quantum realm, where Scott is really just there as an electrical engineer playing with his regulator because he's trying to enhance it, and Pym says, nope, you'll end up in the quantum realm, and you'll be there forever. And it was like just a very quick line that you think you're not really going to hear about again, but to see how that not only became such a big part of this movie, but how they tied it around to Endgame, I love how they planted it this early. Absolutely, yeah. But I agree with you. Other than that, not an awful lot going on here um, in the training sequence at all. What I do love is the actual Avengers tie-in. And at this point, I think, again, they could have played with it a little bit more because I don't know if we can necessarily trust that Pym didn't know it wasn't just Stark's old warehouse and that it is actually now, you know, they send Scott upstate and it is now the Avengers campus. Um, So I, I think it was probably a mistake, but I feel like it may have been a little bit more interesting if he knew. I agree. I love the scene, though, because when when Scott lands on the roof and he's approached by the Avenger that he ends up battling with, he goes, it's the Falcon. (laughs) And I think that's that's Paul Rudd. It's just Paul Rudd, the way that he says it. But (laughs) it's it's absolutely hysterical. And what I love about this scene is how you it's the first time you really see him go in and out of the ant size, the human size, and how he uses that to his advantage to get into the Falcon suit and start disassembling the electrical board on the inside so that he does have a leg up on him. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's not necessarily your call to action, but it's where we really see him start to figure it out, start to embrace the suit, start to be the superhero in his own right because he's acting completely on his own, especially when the cameras go out and, um, you know, Pim can't be his man in the chair. He's just completely on his own in the warehouse and he does get what he needs. I kind of feel like they may have tripped up a little bit in this scene though, because when we get the history of the suits, um, I love the idea that they were being developed for military. Now, this was the yellow jacket. Right. And it was supposed to be that they were able to hide from constant surveillance. And I thought it was like a really good almost throwaway when they showed, you know, all of your security cameras out on the street. 
people carrying cell phones. And this little suit is able to dance in between all of those things. I feel like they A, didn't utilize that enough through the rest of this film until we get to the very end. And B, I know it's the Falcon, but how was he able to pick up a reading that there was an intruder? You're not supposed to see him. Or hear him, for that matter. Yes. And that's where maybe they could have brought in a little bit more of the Paul Rudd goofy comedy if he, you know, did something to expose himself, like accidentally enlarged or knocked something over and caused a lot of noise. I don't like that he was able to pick him up in his glasses. Right. It's like later in the film where Paxton realizes what's going on because he hears the van, which they have now painted. I believe they changed the color of it they play the La Cucaracha horn yes. and he recognizes it from when Scott was driving it earlier. So they've blown their cover. If there would have been a faux pas like that. Exactly. Exactly. It, it would have worked better. I mean, that's not to, I, I love the battle with Falcon. And again, it serves to push the story forward because he is starting to embrace his quote unquote powers so you definitely need this scene. I just think they kind of stepped over their own feet a little bit here. I would agree. What I found interesting, too, is that you think that that's where we're done with Avengers in this film. Um, when we get to the final break-in, um, which, by the way, feels more like National Treasure to me than an Avengers movie, Um but I think the ant sabotage was cool. That kind of like ties the film all together where we see now that Scott can weaponize the ants and yeah. use them. And he's really, you know, there's different kind of ants as we learned in the training montage. He's using them to perform different functions in the break-in. You know, some are there just to get him through the tunnels. Others are going to actually short out the servers. Yeah. Um, and then some will help him with the escape. Um, but they bring the Avengers back in when Cross brings in Hydra. Um, and I found that interesting because I don't know if that was just to bait out the other suit or if he was really going to sell the yellow jacket to them. I think he was going to sell the yellow jacket to them because other than that, without delving too much into him as a character because we haven't gotten to that part of the review yet. I mean, like I said, he's so, I, I mentioned it earlier. He's so unique as a, as a villain that is he menacing enough? I feel like they did that because they felt like they had to make him more menacing and what's more menacing than, than getting Hydra. Hydra. Yeah. I just found it interesting because he does have that line as I knew that there was a second suit. Because right. what he took from him was the yellow jacket. But he, you know, I thought it might have just been his way of getting him to flush it out. Yeah. What I, my favorite part about this scene is when Luis is whistling, it's a small world. Nice touch. Very nice touch. Very nice touch. And another line where he's like, oh, I could be a security guard. And, you know, I could have, like, a whistle. And they were like, no, don't do any of those things. And he does it anyway, because Luis apparently is just going to do whatever he sees fit. I also really like when he asks 
uh, Scott if they're the good guys or the bad guys now because yeah. they're not used to it. But then he goes and he proves it himself because when they're about to blow the whole building up, he goes and he rescues the guard that he formerly knocked out to yeah. take his clothes. Right. Um, so it is it is a fairly strong scene here. I like how rather than just blow the building up, it simply implodes down to really a sm- I think down to a small size. I I got the feeling they were using the PIM shrink technology to implode the building. Right, because otherwise it would have been a much bigger explosion. But I also love how the subplot ties together here because now you've got uh, Paxton on site. Yeah. He's still trying to track down Scott, but now he also recognizes the van here, like we were talking about, and that all comes to a head and they they tied both together really nicely. They tied it all together really nicely and then you get Cross actually in the yellow jacket outfit, you know, he's in the suit. You get a little bit of a conflict with him and Scott. It's okay. It's a little lame for a battle. It's kind of lame. I almost feel like that was a whole setup just to get a cool song in there because the music here, you know, it's not like Captain Marvel where the soundtrack is so strong throughout the movie. And I feel like they just set this up so they could play the cure. The sequence is pretty cool, you know, and it was clever how he accidentally turned on the iPod and then said something that Siri picked up. Um, but I feel like this was more about getting the visual in there than the actual story because the final showdown happens at uh, in Maggie Cassie's Pax, room. Yeah. yeah, at Maggie and Paxton's house. Um, which I thought was cool. I thought was clever, you know, that they were using toys that we recognize and they were enlarged. Like when, when Thomas the Tank Engine yeah. gets huge, it's hysterical and nobody's expecting it. And then they accidentally hit a couple of ants with, with the enlarging discs and they're running yeah. around the neighborhood. Um, I thought that was all pretty clever. But the only thing I don't love about it is that, like, we've seen the Avengers tear cities apart before. I mean, they did it in the Avengers. They did it to New York. They do it in Age of Ultron where they do, uh, what is it, Sokovia? I always forget the name of it. Um, So to see the battle on, like, a little town with a train I mean it's clever but like because it's a little girl's room I think it would have been so much funnier if they like tore apart Malibu Barbie's dream house or something like that and they could have I feel like maybe utilized it a little bit differently if they were like hiding in this Barbie house I I, I don't know I feel like they they didn't play the comedy enough here in a movie that it is more supposed to be comedic than action and that's another thing that sets this movie apart from all of the other marvel movies you know this is not a global attack from uh some being of another planet or another universe this is very much on a micro level it's one person going after really one family for financial gain because that's really all that uh that's that's really the only thing that Cross is concerned with is selling this thing, and he's, he's just trying to eliminate Scott because Scott is the threat. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I otherwise agree with you here. It's fun. I I do like how Scott does go into the quantum realm. I like how he comes back from it, um, and how they use that later in End Game. Um, I like. I mean, yeah, it's 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 fine. Um, but but there could have been more to it. I agree. I like how they do tie up the loose end of the subplot that you know Paxton kind of buries his his uh criminal record yeah. and you know they agree to like co-parent Cassie. I think that's all great. But then after that, like the ending ending falls flat for me. Where I understand that they're setting up the Avengers are looking for him, but I don't know that we needed that part necessarily. With the Luis story. Yeah. And it ends on he said yes. Yeah. And it kind of hangs for a beat, and then the movie just ends abruptly. Yeah. It, it's funny, and I don't know that you needed to end it with the dinner scene on such an, uh, a high note, but I feel like this just wasn't as strong. Yeah. And I don't, th- and check me if I'm wrong on this. The device that he steals from the Avengers campus. Did that really ever play out as to why they needed it, or was that just a was that just a reason to get him on the Avengers campus to get an Avenger in the movie? Oh, that's a great question. I don't recall, and I could be wrong because here's the thing: we really simplified this. The movie does get a little what well, gets very convoluted at times, and I think part of that has to do with him being shrunk and the settings that they put him in. And we'll talk about the visuals in a few moments here, but I honestly do not remember. And we've watched the movie twice in the last couple of days. I don't remember if that device ends up really being something that is totally necessary or not. They do use it because when Luis knocks out the guard, Hope comes in and she like attaches it to a machine. They do something with it, but I honestly can't tell you what its function is. Right. So really it seems like they used it more as an excuse to get him onto the Avenger property. Right. And then later to establish what side hope is on. Right. It's not as if Stark had pim particles that they needed or had the wasp suit or something else that they, they, they so desperately needed to pull this off. I feel like him having pim particle which he does by the way as we later find out in endgame when tony and the cap travel back and they have to go to not the campus but um it, it's the jersey site yes um where tony interacts with his own father I believe. Exactly, yeah. exactly. With yeah, with Howard on yeah. the on the day that Tony's supposed to be born. Yes. It's his birthday. Um I, yeah, I mean, they must have had that scene in mind already at this point because if you would have made him go for the pim particles, it it would have made Endgame lose all the gravity of that scene. Yeah. And I think it was more important for Tony to have that moment than it was for us to have to do a break-in for a pin particle here. Yeah, I agree. Do you have anything else on the story here before we start talking about the cast and the characters? No. Okay. We'll start with Paul Rudd. It's the reasonable place to start. Paul Rudd should not work as a superhero, 
but he works as a superhero. I don't think he would work as any other superhero but Ant-Man, but I think he works for the character. We've said it a million times. We love Paul Rudd. We're huge fans. I've seen almost every film that he he's ever done. And there have been a lot because he's had so many bit parts. Yeah. So with that said, I am so happy that he finally got his due and he got a superhero role. However, I don't buy him as a hardened criminal. And I don't know if it's because of the way he played it or because of all the other Paul Rudd roles that are in the back of my mind. Like, he's Josh from Clueless. Come on. Um, I think he works as an electrical engineer. I think he works as that awkward rookie Avenger, especially when we see that come into play later when he comes back in Endgame and... Uh, you know, every time he meets someone, he's like, oh, my God, it's you. He kinda I'm has, Ant-Man. He kind of has the Peter Parker thing going on. He does. And that's it. There's, you know, there's n- I don't think there's a place for two of those things. So but because he did it first, I kind of wish they didn't do it so much with Spider-Man as good as Tom Holland is. Um, but I buy that awkward rookie Avenger thing and I really buy him as the desperate father who will go to the end of his, uh, the end of the earth to reunite with his daughter and, and make sure that he's doing everything in his power to give her a good life and have a good relationship with her. It's just that set up in the beginning. It's weird to see him fighting, not just in prison, but with, with Evangeline Lily later. Like I do believe she'd kick his butt in real life. Yeah. Um, so those are the things that don't really jive for me at times. But then at the same time, you got to give him credit because when he is in that scene, he takes his shirt off and he's ripped. So clearly he was the right guy for the job because he really did take this on head first. And he has a writing credit as well. Yeah. But I think that's probably because he does do a lot of improv. And when there's, you know, that, that awkwardness, you can't write that. So I'm guessing those were his contributions. Yeah, his snark is absolutely perfect. Here. Exactly. Let's talk about Evangeline Lilly. Didn't love Lost, but she was probably my favorite character. Like, I found it very hard to get invested in that cast, but she was probably the character that i gravitated toward the most i'm not gonna say i'm a huge fan but um she had the most interesting story of all of them yeah maybe sawyer but it's probably her i like her i think she's a great actress and i think she's gorgeous like what were you doing with her hair i don't know if that was a terrible wig or a terrible haircut i'm still not sure i think it's a bad wig and and it do, it does not look right on her. No, like because the whole it, time we're it waiting, doesn't move like real hair. No, no, like the whole time we're waiting for her to like pull it off, and like her long hair comes from behind her, you know, and she pulls like a black widow thing. But no, that's just how they decided to make her look for the entire movie. It's just not convincing. I don't know though, because there's one point where she tucks her hair behind her ear when they're putting in the um the communication device with the ants. Yeah, and it doesn't look like a wig. I don't, whatever it is, it's not working. No. It's not working. Otherwise, 
love her in this role. I like the character of Hope. I I like the conflict with her father. Um, I love the chemistry between the two of them. I feel that that's totally believable. Yeah. What's truly unbelievable to me, I believe Paul Rudd with Judy Greer. I do not believe Judy Greer with Bobby Cannavale. Oh, I do. Really? I, yeah, I do. First off, I love Bobby Cannavale and everything he's ever been in. Same. And Judy Greer. And again, yeah. she's another one like Paul Rudd. It's like, you've had a million bit parts. It's great to see her have a comeuppance. I Rather buy, than just a voiceover yeah. at the beginning of Captain Marvel. I buy her with Bobby Cannavale because I think that she is so desperate for structure. And I think she's so desperate to not be associated with a criminal that who better to be with than a detective? You do a complete 180, yeah. I just don't believe them as a couple. I I believe the reasoning, but I'm talking about just like on the surface. I guess. I guess it comes off as disingenuous, like, well, I ended up being with a criminal the first time, so I just wound up with a detective the second time to make up for it. But regardless, I do love the casting because I, I love both of them. So I was happy to see them have a part in the movie. And I do I do love Paxton's character. I love the arc. Um, I think it created a good conflict with Scott the entire time. I love that he lets him off the hook. And I also love his moments with Cassie. I think they're really sweet. And for, for a supporting role... I mean, he's just such a talented actor. It, it goes without saying. He steals the scenes. You know, when he's in the final battle and he's like, get behind me. Like, I, I truly believe that he cares for her. Yeah. And you sort of feel bad for him because at the end of the day, he is he, he's not one of these archetype stepdads that you see in movies that try really hard and it's fake. Yes. He's trying because... He means it. And so at times you sort of feel bad for his character because he is trying his best and it's it's sort of falling on deaf ears every single time. Well, I think it's twofold because I think he wants to step up and be the father that she never had. But, you know, a, a compliment to the casting, too. She's a really cute kid. Yeah. Abby Ryder Forston Forston. That's her name. She's adorable and she's super convincing. Oh, she's excellent. I think you want to talk about somebody that steals the scenes, though. I mentioned him before, Michael Pena. I mean, this guy is an is an incredible actor. He's done a ton of movies. I've I think he's great in everything he's been in. He's done comedy. He's done drama. He's done action. I mean, this guy checks all of the boxes. I feel like Ant Man was you know the casting department was like come <laughs> get your leading roles yeah. for everybody that was due for a really big part yeah um i love him in this movie i think he steals the scenes i think he steals every scene that he's in and and it doesn't while the short story made long i appreciate it i know some people didn't love it but every time they dropped him in for comic relief, it worked where they used him. Great comic relief and even better sidekick. Absolutely. Michael Douglas is a legend of film. And I really do like him in this role. Same. 
Um, because it's it's sort of weird though. He doesn't come off like a Stark. He doesn't come off like Alfred from Batman, but he's like in that gray area in between. Right. And that's what I mean. Like, I think it just would have been so much more interesting if you couldn't necessarily trust him because he was pulling a lot of strings. Yeah. With the manipulating, especially. You just don't often see that from the good guy. Yeah. Yeah. But I love the casting choice. I'm glad he was healthy enough to do this. Um, I love the de-aging in his first scene. I was really impressed with that. I think that's some of the best CGI in the movie. It's almost flawless. If I didn't know you de-aged him, if I wasn't really looking at it and scrutinizing it, I would have thought, no, that's Michael Douglas. Yeah. I think his de-aging is better than some of the de-aging that we saw in, uh, what was it, Tron Legacy. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a big difference between Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy and Michael Douglas here, but you know, just in terms of how much CGI has changed in the years in between those movies, but I mean, his looks better. But Michael Douglas has also aged very well. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot less you need to do for him than you would for Jeff Bridges. Nothing against Jeff Bridges, but it is what it is. I like Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly together. Yes. Their tension is palpable. Very believable. Yeah, the the chemistry is there. I don't buy that he married Michelle Pfeiffer or that that is her mother, as we will learn in the later Marvel films. That that has nothing to do with Ant-Man, but I feel like that that doesn't really pay off for me when we eventually see who her mother is. Um, I buy them together. I don't buy her as Hope's mother. So I, I almost wish they had just gone with his actual, but I think that's the problem. They're too close in age. If, if they had cast Catherine Zeta Jones, unless they age her, you could put makeup on her to age her. Mm, that's kind of insulting. Well, they did it for Haley Atwood. But they had to do it because they did a time jump with her character. They're not saying, well, you don't look old enough to be married to your actual husband, so we're going to age you. Or I'm saying she might be too close in age in real life to Evangeline Lilly where you're just not going to buy it. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I I feel like if, if you're an actor or an actress and they age you, that's or de-age you that's kind of a it's it it comes with the territory it does but not to be cast i mean time jump yes but to tell someone we're gonna make you look older no actress is gonna want to hear that well they would have only had to do it for end game in this movie because you only see her in flashback they wouldn't have had to age her at all so technically speaking, it would have been a time jump because she's been stuck in the quantum realm. That's right, because she got frozen in time. Oh, you're right. Oh, so maybe they could have used Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm, that's interesting. Anyway, back to <laughs> the first Ant-Man. Yeah. Let's talk about our villain. Um, I think that Corey Stoll 
works as Cross. I like Cross. I like what he's doing. I think for this movie, he's fine. But I think he's by far the most forgettable villain in the MCU. I agree. He's definitely an overlooked villain because he flushes a guy. Yeah. Down the toilet. Exactly. I mean, granted, okay, he he disintegrates him first, but he wipes him up with a tissue and flushes him. Yeah. That's just such blatant disregard for human life that you don't see other than the likes of Thanos. But after that, that's all he does. Yeah. Then it's like, all right, grow a pair if you're going to be a villain, because he doesn't really do anything else other than, oh, let me call in Hydra. Yeah, and then I'll go sit in this little girl's bedroom and wait for her father to come so yeah. I can kill him. So in that, like, that's the thing. You sleep on him when he does something so memorable as as flush another person, but otherwise, like, he's kind of a wimpy villain. Let's talk about some of the special effects. I want to talk about Haley Atwood again because you talked about how the de-aging on Michael Douglas was great. I don't think the aging on her was accurate at all. I mean, the makeup that they put on her looked good, but if you think about Agent Carter and Captain America, it's the early 1940s, thereabouts. Maybe the late 30s. I think it was the early 40s, though. You have somebody who we're going to presume is somewhere around the age of 30. Right. Okay, now you're in the late 1980s. So let's say 55 years later, you can make the case for, hey, Agent Carter aged great, but she doesn't look like a a person in her mid 80s. No, she looks like Cruella. She looks like somebody that's maybe pushing 70, maybe. So I just didn't buy her aging process at all i agree i think they should have given her you know if they weren't going to do it in her face given her maybe like a walker or a wheelchair to really show how much time had passed or just gray her hair a little bit more yeah too much color there um but other than that i think that the special effects here, for the most part, are really, really strong. Mm. Go ahead. This is where we're going to disagree. Um, I feel like this was a big miss because most of the scenes where Ant-Man shrinks, it's clever. You know, the first shrink is in a bathtub. And he's running away from the water. But then I feel it was kind of odd to have him falling through the floors of the apartment building. I feel like it was weird that he... And granted, it's his first time in the suit. He doesn't, you know, have control of it yet. But when you think about an actual ant, they don't get banged around that much where they're falling through floors. I feel like that was more of a gimme for the visuals to then put it in a club scene, by the way, in the middle of a day in an apartment building. And, and that's been an ongoing party. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I get that it's San Francisco, but like... Mm. And it's also supposed to be a really dingy apartment building. Right. 
And then he lands on the bottom floor. He gets sucked into the vacuum or almost gets sucked into the vacuum. We see the Lego go. And then we see the rat. And every bit of it is CGI. And what I don't like about that, number one, is that they put these weird filters on to give you a POV, which I don't usually get bothered by visual tricks like that, but it, I don't want to say it makes me nauseous, but it, it messes with my head a little bit here. And what I really wish more than anything else, which I nine times out of 10 do when it comes to CGI, I wish they had done it practical. And I think what that even stems back to I wish they had a different director because you have the built-in perfect person for this job. And you talked about it at the top of the episode is it's so interesting to me. Yeah. That this was up against honey. I shrunk the kids. That was his directorial debut. And he has since gone on to do a superhero movie because he did captain America. Why would you not have him direct a movie where the main character shrinks? It's beyond me. Well, I think, A, they're trying to not make it just like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And the other thing is, it's, I mean, for the most part, it's not as if you need to recycle those sets over and over again. The way you could with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He doesn't interact with that Lego again. He doesn't interact with that club again. He doesn't interact with the rat again. And let's be real about something. They, they're about how do we do it cheap. CGI is cheap. But when you think about it, they can, it's like they condensed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, a full feature-length movie, into those two minutes of his first shrink. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, same thing. The sprinklers come on. He's running away from water in the bathtub. Yep. Instead of the ant and the scorpion, okay, that would have been very problematic. You can't mm-hmm. have an ant in this movie, but you have the rat. You have the Lego again. I mean, the only thing they did differently is that they're dodging shoes. Right. So. Well, you have plenty of ants. You just don't have the scorpion. Right. But that's what I'm saying. You couldn't do it with an ant here because that's the whole. You'd lose your whole movie. So I get why they changed it to a rat. But I, I give you that, that it was probably budgetary because why build all these big things when you're going to use them in a very short amount of time? But it even happens again on the second shrink when he's escaping the jail. It, it's that really annoying POV shot. But the weird thing is they don't put you in the eyes of Scott. They give you the POV in the movement of the camera because you're following the ant swaying as it's flying. Right. Same thing as he's falling through the apartment, but we don't see it through his eyes. And right. it just messes with my head. Sh- sort of throws off your depth perception. Exactly. And I think Joe Johnston would have done it a million times better. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, Disney loves ants. We have Auntie from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and we have Anthony in this movie. I love that he named him. Yeah. Um, but um, I- I'm thinking more in terms of like the quantum realm. I think when he goes into the quantum realm, Ugh. not for you. It's it's nauseating. And I don't usually get like, I, I like I know you've teased me about my feelings on Phil Her Magic when Donald falls in the Aladdin scene. I have to close my eyes, but I really, I don't, it's, it's I, I don't know. 
No, but really, I the only person on the face of the earth that has to close their eyes during Philhar magic because you really feel it. It's a credit to Philhar magic. But I don't get motion sickness. Like I'm not that way in car. It's just the the scenes, particularly the quantum realm, most of all messes with my head, and I don't. I just don't like it. I feel like it's weird shapes and colors. I hate, I think a little bit might be like psychological. Like I hate the feeling of like just falling into the void. So for that much, they achieved it. But like, honestly, the only other movie that's messed with my head that much was Avatar because we saw it in 3D and I had to get up to go to the bathroom because that movie goes on forever. And I remember when I got up, I just wanted to like drop to my hands and knees because I felt like I had no balance and I needed to like crawl around. And that's how this makes me feel. It's interesting. But I mean, I guess it makes sense. The whole time I'm thinking, wow, this would make a great attraction. And well, oh, God, please. No, Hong Kong got it. Really? Ant-Man nano battle. Hong Kong got it. So, you know, they're doing these Avenger campuses at the Disney properties at all of their parks, and, and they got Ant-Man. Uh, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, nano battle. Interesting. So, it, it, Why does nobody want to recycle Body Wars for a ride like this? It's so easy. And Disney is hurting right now. Just recycle what you have. Yep, you are pounding the table for the return of Body Wars in some way, shape, or form. I, okay, as much as I just said this bothered me, I'll go on that if I can go on the Body Wars attraction again. You had to shut your eyes at the movie theater <laughs> to see this, and you can't keep your eyes open for Philhar Magic. Explain to me how you're going on Nano Battle. But Star, Star Tours, I'm fine. Th that makes no sense. That makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... All they have to do is reshoot the video. They can retrofit it. You don't even have to reprogram the movements. Just change out the video and you could put Ant-Man right into Epcot. It would work. The science of it all. And you could put it over by uh, Guardians. Exactly. So with that said, what's your final synopsis? <laughs> um... Is this my favorite Avengers movie? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. I love Paul Rudd. I love the rest of the cast. I think I, I will die on the hill of you have the wrong director for this movie. Um, and to be honest, this may be harsh, but I don't think you needed it for Infinity War and Endgame. I think that... The setup with the pim particles is good, but I think you could have actually done it in a few throwaway lines and just put Ant-Man into Avengers. Um, you know, it's not like Doctor Strange where you really had to learn about how he mastered the, you know, jumping in and out of, through time and space, right. really. I don't think the plot points that were hit on in Infinity War and Endgame merited an entire film to get there. Um, I hate saying that because, like I said, I, I love Paul Rudd. And do I enjoy the movie? Yeah, for the most part. But I think if you were going to bother to give us that much context for Ant-Man, I think you could have done it better. I will disagree with most of what you just said. 
the most of which being that you don't need this to set up Endgame. I don't think Endgame exists without this movie. Really? I don't think that you can have Endgame on throwaway lines. And you've invested that much time and that much money and that many films into setting up Endgame. What's one more? And I, I think that this is essential. Well, that's, that's exactly how I feel. What's one more? And I feel like it was a cash grab. I don't think so at all. I, th- I, I don't think so at all. You, you took a secondary Marvel character that most people didn't know about and you rolled the dice and it just happened to pay out to the tune of half a billion dollars. But you had to set up Avengers Endgame. And, and without those Pym particles, without him getting out of the quantum realm, a lot of Endgame does not happen. So I disagree with you on that. Well, that's right. I forgot that he does trigger. I'm thinking about the end in his final battle. I forgot for a second that, yeah. The entire first two hours of the movie exists because of the he quantum realm and him coming back. But I, I actually don't like that setup at all for it. That's why it's forgettable to me. I think that only Paul Rudd could get arrested for returning stolen goods. Um, <laughs> I think that there are certain tropes in this movie. I think that um, the hallmark of any Marvel lab are the floor-to-ceiling glass walls. You see it in every Marvel movie. Um, I think at times it's frustrating because the pacing can be slow and wonky, but to their credit, Sometimes they throw an awful lot of information at you in a very small window, but they break it down to the point where it makes a lot of sense. So in that aspect, the movie is frustrating. But I think all around the movie is fun. Is this going to be the first Marvel movie I grab when I want to watch a Marvel movie? No. Far from it. Is this the last time I'm ever going to watch this movie? No. Far from it. To me, it's just another Marvel movie. But... I think that it is just another Marvel movie that when the MCU finally closed out this last phase with Endgame, this became necessary. I think when they closed out the MCU, they did a good job of basically tying up the loose ends and taking almost everything that we had seen in those movies leading up to it and somehow tying it back around to eventually defeating Thanos, up to, in, up to and including what they did in this movie. But we want to know what you have to say about it. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the week coming up in just a moment, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, Get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. This week, in terms of news, is all about two things. The reopening of Walt Disney World and the release of Hamilton. Let's start with the release of Hamilton first. We did a bonus episode earlier this week where we reviewed and discussed it. We also had some of our friends, you know, we threw it out there on the social media to let us know what your reviews of it were and some of our some of our friends in the Disney community reached out to us. You can hear our review and their review on this week's bonus episode. 
uh, make sure you give that a listen. And we talked about it a little bit then, but basically confirmed now, Disney Plus has exploded. The subscriptions have gone up. The downloads of the app have gone up because people are going crazy for Hamilton. I would like to see that stock price come up a little bit. (laughs) And I think that the second bit of news is going to help that. But Hamilton creating a buzz. People are still talking about it now. And it's been almost a week since it has seen its initial release. Now, I think people are getting that out of their system because shifting to this upcoming weekend is going to be one of the most significant weekends in the history of the Walt Disney Company. We don't need to rehash what has happened in the last three or four months. But we are focused on the future. And the future starts this weekend with the reopening of the Walt Disney World Resort. And it seems like they did their cast member previews Earlier this week, mm-hmm. I've seen videos, I've seen photographs from friends of ours who are CMs. And you know what? Is it 100% back to normal? No. Will it be for a long time? Probably not. But there's just something about seeing the castle, seeing the parks reopen where it starts to become, even for us, from from the view 1,100 miles away, there is a feeling of comfort that is starting to come across right now. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the pictures released of the newly painted castle, which, by the way, we, we haven't really talked about. I don't like it. Um, surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise. Yeah, go figure. Me and my obsession with... Nostalgia and tradition. I don't like it. But um, it looks awesome. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the colors are very vivid because they actually factored in the sun fade. Yes. For the first time. Yeah, I think so. However, it is five years from now. It's going to look totally different. Exactly. And you don't realize how much it faded over the years. But it did. And I think they factored that in and they want it looking sharp for the 50th anniversary next year. However, it is so pink. And so blue now, I feel like we've forgotten that it's Cinderella's castle and it's almost become Sleeping Beauties. And not Sleeping Beauties in Disneyland. I just mean make it pink, make it blue. I wouldn't, I'd like it better if it was green, honestly. Oof. But I'm just saying, you've made it too much like Sleeping Beauty. But anyway, um, my best friend who's a cast member sent me a selfie in front of it. And it wasn't until then that it really felt real for me that it's opening again. Because, you know, he does that all the time. He knows we love Disney. He's a CM. He'll, you know, if he's walking through the parks or through the hotels, he will always send me pictures. And because I haven't gotten a photo of him in the parks in so long, you know, it's been a picture of him by his pool while he's been awaiting for them to reopen and go back to work. Yeah. Um, it didn't get real for me until that moment. So with that being said, I mean, obviously this is my best friend and I do have a very vested interest in this. If you are going, please be kind to the cast members. They are feeling as weird as we are being so displaced and being so far removed from Disney. They 
just gone back to work after having been unemployed. They're just as hot wearing the mask as you are. So just please try to be patient with them. Yeah. And our friend Lou Mangello, he put out a nice graphic saying, be kind, be patient, be understanding. And I think that that sums it up perfectly. We mentioned it on the show a couple of weeks ago as we were getting closer to the reopen. And I said it then and I'll say it again right now. And and I'm not afraid if I face any backlash for it. If you if you do not possess the ability to be patient, be kind and be understanding, you should not be going to Walt Disney World. Just be happy you're healthy and that you get to go. That's it. And if you don't want to wear the mask, and if you don't want to be patient, and if you don't want to social distance, and if you don't want to be understanding that this is not going to be the way you pictured it in your mind, and I understand Disney World's not cheap. I get it. I get it. Not going to gloss over that. Maybe this is the one family vacation you're going to take to Disney World as a family because you can afford it now. And you can only do it once. If that's the case and you don't think you possess the ability to chill out a little bit, Push your vacation to next year. Push it to 2022 if you have to. But please be kind and be understanding to these cast members. They are in as a unique, if not more of a unique situation than you are. Because remember something. They have to uphold the rules that a lot of people out there don't want to follow right now. And you're reading it on social media. I'm going to Magic Kingdom. I'm not wearing a mask. Then please do not go to Magic Kingdom. Do not go to Revel Rouse. If you're going to go, go because you understand what the protocol is. Keep yourself safe. Keep your family safe. Keep the cast members safe. But it's reopening this week. And I couldn't be more excited to see everything open again. Which is weird because we're not APs. But there's been something so upsetting to me about this the entire time that Disney has not been open because it ha- it's our safe place. It's our happy place. And for your happy place to not be there, to not exist for a period of time, it was even though we weren't going to go anyway, <laughs> it was still tough to deal with. I can't wait to hear the music. Yes. From the parks. I feel like that's going to make it very real, too. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com, and you can also check out monorealradio.com, where we have links to all the social media as well as a, a media player where you can go and listen to any episode of the show. And, of course, you can also listen to us through your podcast platform of choice and It would be greatly appreciated if you guys could go ahead and leave us an iTunes review. The reviews are more valuable than you understand. We love hearing from you. We love interacting from you. And one of the best ways to do that is to go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We will be back next week to discuss Ant-Man and the Wasp. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone.